This week on Geek Explained, with the first big X-Men event of the Hickman era officially underway, we're counting down my top five favorite X-Men events of all time. Welcome back to Geek Explained. I'm your host, Eric Kazana, and today's episode is celebrating X-Men. Uh, the X-Men are kind of going through a bit of a renaissance right now. Ever since Hickman took over pretty much the entire X-Line with the House of X, Powers of Ten, uh soft reboot, I guess we could say, um, it's really just been X-Mania. That's been going on over at Marvel. We have too many books to keep track of at this point. And now we are heading into the first big milestone for Hickman's era of the X-Men. And that is Ten of Swords. It's this big, like, 22-part or 24-part uh crossover event across pretty much every single X-Men book that's going on right now. And with the uh, initial, I guess, chapter one uh, kicking things off last week, I figured it would be a good time to go back into the history of Marvel's Merry Mutants and count down my top five favorite X-Men events of all time. Also on this episode, we have the latest weekly review on the newest episode of Season 2 of The Boys, and of course, this week's Comics Countdown. But before we get into all of that, let's check in with this week's news. Alright guys and dolls, so I got some news for you this week. We have our four categories, film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous, and there's actually quite a bit of news. I'm really excited to talk about some of the stuff that we're going to be covering today, so let's go ahead and jump right into it. Uh, kicking things off with miscellaneous news, as you probably know if you've been keeping your ear to the ground in the world of gaming, uh, Xbox went on sale with their new Xbox Series X and Xbox Series S this past Tuesday, and just like PlayStation 5, there was a whole bunch of problems. Um, Pre-orders pretty much sold out immediately, and I'm going to tell you, I got one. That's right, I was able to land a pre-order for the Xbox Series S, the digital version, and I'm really excited about it. Um, It was a little bit easier for me to get a uh, pre-order from this. I was completely shut out of the original uh, PlayStation 5 pre-order shenanigans so i'm pretty excited about this as i as the year has been kind of going on i've been getting more and more into uh digital gaming when it comes to my games and how i uh how i have them i'm usually a hard copy guy we've talked about this before on uh, the podcast how both with comics and video games i'm usually i i like having a hard copy of things but as you know things are happening the world is changing i am having to adapt to that so i'm starting to uh, get more digital i'm starting to catch up with the times and not be so much of an old man even though i'm still very much an old man 
Um, so I'm excited about it. It should be a really good time. Uh, another big news that happened pretty much exactly when uh, last week's episode dropped, so that is why you did not hear about it on last week's episode and why I'm covering it here, uh, to kind of kick things off with all of the uh, Xbox pre-orders and to get people, I guess, excited to get a console, Xbox announced that they have officially bought Bethesda. They technically just bought the parent company that uh, help, that houses Bethesda, but they've pretty much now locked up uh, franchises like uh, The Elder Scrolls, Fallout, and pretty much everything that kind of falls under that umbrella. So this is exciting for uh, Xbox fans who are also fans of games like Fallout and Elder Scrolls. Um, we're a big uh, Skyrim and Fallout household here, so we're pretty excited about it. And it basically made the Xbox kind of a must-buy for this uh, this go-around. So I'm pretty excited about it. I'm looking forward to seeing exactly what uh, ends up coming out of this partnership. And I'm also really excited to see how Sony and PlayStation respond. So it should be really interesting. Moving on into our one piece of comics news. It was announced uh, this week that Wonder Woman Earth 1 is getting a Volume 3 from writer Grant Morrison and artist Yannick Paquette. And it is going to be dropping on March 9th of 2021. And will kind of wrap up the story that's been uh, set up and paid off through the last two volumes. I am a big fan of the Earth One line. Specifically, I love the Batman Earth One books. I'm a huge fan of those two volumes, and I would love to see a volume three, you know, as long as that would take. But um, I'm pretty excited. I wasn't, I, I'm going to say I liked the first volume of Wonder Woman Earth One. I wasn't as hot on volume two, but volume three is... Uh, Gearing up to be something special, I'm going to read the synopsis here for you. Diana, now queen of Amazons, ha- must assemble the disparate Amazonian tribes for the first time in a millennium. Max Lord's assault on Paradise Island with his destructive Ares armors is on the horizon, and in order to weather the war that is coming, Wonder Woman will need the full might of her sisters by her side. Can Diana finally bring her message of peace to man's world, or will Maxwell Lord's war burn the world and the Amazons to ashes? Um, it's a tale as old as time, Wonder Woman versus Maxwell Lord. I'm not super, uh, I don't know, it's it's a really small thing, but I'm not uh, super down with Maxwell Lord suddenly being Max Lord. I have to assume it it is due to him being called that in Wonder Woman 84 whenever we get that movie, but I, um, I'm a Maxwell Lord guy. I, I fall in that camp. Maxwell Lord is just his name. Uh, Max Lord just—I don't know. It sounds like a '90s villain. Maybe, maybe I'm just weird, but um, that is just my personal preference. Uh, moving on into TV news, we got our first look at Javisha Leslie in the Batwoman costume. It's very clear that it's still uh, uh, Rose Ruby Rose. M- just forgot her name for a second um it's very clear that it's not it wasn't made for her and i'm hoping as her season goes along she gets a costume more tailored to her but otherwise she looks fine i mean it's batwoman so i'm excited i'm still pretty uh Pretty hyped, and definitely will be tuning in when that season hits uh, the uh, 
hits the CW. But another show, another DC show that I'm very excited about, is they announced this past week that Peacemaker uh, from James Gunn's Suicide Squad will be getting his own spin-off show on HBO Max. Is going to be helmed by James Gunn, and we'll see John Cena reprising his role as Peacemaker. And the way that they did this, they showed like a... Um, a very um, classic uh, Suicide Squad art styling of Peacemaker. And then the the text around it just says, fuck, it's Peacemaker. And I'm like, God, I hope that's the name of the show. I've I've said this before. I put it on Twitter. Um, I said I hope that the, that the name of the show is "Fuck It's Peacemaker" and that every episode starts off with someone shouting that right before the opening credits. I'm gonna put my money down here that I think that that's the way to go, and I'm hoping and I have my fingers crossed that that's what's gonna happen. I just think it'd be funny, and I'm excited for this. They haven't stated, I think rightfully so, whether this is going to be a prequel to the uh, Suicide Squad movie or a sequel um it's smart i mean we don't know what's going to happen to any of these characters when that movie comes out so it's a good thing to kind of get people excited about it while at the same time keeping the integrity of the movie Uh, one show that i'm really questioning the integrity of though is uh nick fury is apparently going to be getting a disney plus show of his own right now i don't know why they keep loading up more Uh, shows when they can't even get the ones that they're currently working on off the ground. The only one that is even near ready to release right now is WandaVision. And if you look at the original uh, Phase 4 lineup, it was supposed to be like halfway through. And because of delays and everything, they had to push it way up. So I'm... I don't know how I feel about this. Uh, Nick Fury, ever since pretty much post-Winter Soldier, really has had nothing to do. And even though we got a nice little tease in uh, Spider-Man Far From Home that he's going to be establishing S.W.O.R.D., I just... I don't know. I don't really have an interest in it. I'm not um, I'm not really excited about it. If we get more like of Nick Fury's past dealing with like Cold War stuff, dealing with uh, more S.H.I.E.L.D. spy stuff back in the day, I might be more interested. But as it stands, I'm not really interested in seeing Nick Fury since he's been more of like a tangential piece of the MCU at this point. I don't know. That's just me, though. But moving into the film news, some big film news here. Um, I'm going to start off with something that I'm sure is going to be very divisive here, and that's the news that uh, the Snyder Cut, which is oncoming and is supposed to drop in 2021, I think, um, has officially uh, begun reshoots, uh, bringing back certain actors to reprise their roles Uh, initially this wasn't the plan as far as i understand but the reshoots are apparently going to cost 70 million dollars um maybe i'm just being petty but i just this this makes me feel like all of the people who for years were saying yeah it's done it's a cut that's done like just it makes they've got some egg on their face i think from that um i understand that now that they're extending this into a mini series and i'm using quotations because that word is very um i'm using that word liberally here um that certain things will be need to be extended certain characters who may have been cut in the original cut will need to be brought back but i just i don't know i'm still just this whole thing is like a whole big deal and you've got people on each side just being kind of ridiculous about it. It is what it is. I'm not gonna 
say that someone is right or someone is wrong for having these reshoots. But anyway, uh, moving on to something I'm actually excited about. Uh, Aldous Hodge is an actor, and he has re... I don't know why I started it like that. Um, he has recently been tapped to play Hawkman in Black Adam. I'm really excited about this. Aldous Hodge is a great actor, and he is going to absolutely kill it as Hawkman. Uh, this was announced by Dwayne The Rock Johnson on Instagram, where he also uh, he basically put up the photos of the two characters, the two characters, the actor and the character together, and then also captioned it with the conversation they had on the phone when The Rock went to offer him the role. So really cool stuff. I'm getting more excited about Black Adam by the day, and I can't wait to see what exactly they do with Hawkman in this film. Uh, We also got official confirmation that Black Widow is delayed to 2021, specifically May 7th, 2021. And with that, the entire order of the uh, Phase 4 movies has been shaken up, so we're going to go through those right now. Uh, Black Widow is officially set for May 7th, 2021, followed by Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings on July 9th of 2021. Eternals is going to be dropping November 5th, 2021, and then rounding out the year will be Spider-Man 3, whatever they call it, uh, in December of 2021. That is a huge huge lineup for next year if you also uh factor in falcon and the winter soldier and possibly loki uh this year i think everyone has kind of slowed down on their hype for the mcu with both uh endgame last year as well as the fact that we haven't gotten anything of the mcu this entire year um I'm still excited for WandaVision. That's probably the thing I'm most excited about right now until uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier comes out. But we'll see. This means that 2021 is going to be a stacked year for the MCU. Uh, 2022, a little bit less so. Uh, Thor Love and Thunder is still set for February 11th of 2022. And Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness looks like it's going to be wrapping things up on March 25th, 2022. So initially, again, uh, WandaVision was supposed to be like kind of midway and then lead directly into Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. So I don't know if that's going to affect how WandaVision ends or how... uh, Certain films get placed, uh, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. I'm still really excited about the films that we've got on tap, especially Shang-Chi, uh, Thor, Love and Thunder, and Doctor Strange. So we're, we've still got MCU stuff on the horizon. We're going to be looking forward to it. And uh, that's going to wrap up for this week's news. Speaking of the Marvel Universe, we're going to roll right on into the main event of this episode, which is my top five favorite X-Men events of all time. The X-Men, fighting for peace and equality in a world that hates and fears them. And that fight's been going on for a pretty long time, ever since the 60s when uh, the first team of X-Men comprised of Professor X, Cyclops, Iceman, Beast, Angel, and Marvel Girl hit stands, the X-Men have been fighting for a long time, and they've been fighting for their own piece of the pie when it comes to uh, equality. They've been 
a an allegory for uh, racism, for uh, sexism, for any group that has been marginalized or discriminated against, and. Because of that, the X-Men have gone through a lot of changes. They've gone through a lot of big ground-shaking and line-shaking events. And I think when Hoxpox, uh, House of X, Powers of Ten, came out, uh, helmed by Jonathan Hickman, this was a kind of a radical shift for them. It was a big, uh, momentous, like next like turning page of a new era time for the x-men and right now in the midst of that changing era of that hickman era we're looking at the very first event the very first big you know line-wide event coming to the x-men in the form of ten of swords or x of swords it was revealed in uh, ten of swords creation that it is technically ten of swords but however you want to pronounce it this is the first big you know 22 part uh event that is going to be bringing the x-men into the next step of where the uh line and where hickman is taking them and throughout history there have been the history of the x-men and marvel comics there have been quite a few events that have shifted the course of the x-men when it comes to the larger marvel universe and with ten of swords getting set to kind of move them into their next phase, it got me thinking about what my favorite events involving the X-Men were. Um, Looking back, kind of going through the history of the team, the history of the books, all the way through the different creative teams, I kind of wanted to take a special look at the X-Men events that are near and dear to my heart. So today's episode is going to be talking about my top five favorite X-Men events of all time. There are some caveats here, and I want to get those right out of the way. I'm going to be doing uh, very light spoilers because I do want you to check out these books. There will be a little bit of spoilers here and there, but I'm going to do my best to not spoil the entire book for you because I think these all five of these events definitely deserve uh, for you to go and check them out. Or if you haven't read them in a little while, to go back and revisit them. I revisited all of these events in the lead up to uh, recording this, and I was really just taken aback by how much I really enjoyed these comics. Most of them are fairly modern. There is one exception, but I really wanted to look at events that kind of instituted a bit of a shift when it comes to the X-Men, whether that's, you know, in-universe or in the eyes of fans. And I also wanted to kind of make some exclusions. So there are some exclusions here. Uh, When it comes to events, I was kind of looking at big landmark events, not so much like long story arcs. So we won't be talking about the Dark Phoenix saga because that was like a year and a half long uh thing that really was just confined to the main X-Men book. Uh, I've talked to uh, some people on Twitter and some people in my own circles about, you know, what makes an event, what makes a big event. Um, 
that involves like crossovers with different books, whether they be X-Men books or other Marvel books, and it involves, you know, a big status quo shift. That's why also on this list, another notable exclusion is going to be uh, Days of Future Past, because the original event uh, was literally just two issues in Uncanny X-Men, and it was supposed to be just another story that really just kind of caught fire and became this huge thing that would influence a lot of the X-Men events that would follow it. But those two are going to be pretty notable exceptions. Um, I am going to also, because I'm just, I am who I am, I'm going to make a quick honorable mention before we dive into the list. I really enjoyed Avengers vs. X-Men. I know you're going to be pressing stop on there right now, but before you do, just let me say that I know that Avengers vs. X-Men isn't a phenomenal story. I know that it isn't a perfect event. I know that a lot of it kind of uh, is good to not great at all, and that it kind of gets uh, taken over by the Phoenix Five story, which I personally enjoyed, but and it doesn't really um, deliver on the promise of Avengers vs. X-Men, but. I really enjoyed it. I liked how much it was a status quo shift for the X-Men. I like that um, we. I enjoyed the Phoenix Five. I know it's dumb, but I kind of liked it. Um, I also, I really like that by the end of the book, we have these big status quo shifts for the characters. You know, Cyclops essentially becomes a criminal. Um, Hope and Scarlet Witch go and essentially reverse the damage done by Decimation, by M-Day, for the most part. And we're going to be talking about that again later. Um, and overall, it was just a fun event that, you know, I ended up enjoying. But if you don't, it's not your cup of tea. Totally understand. And for a lot of reasons, including, you know, the ones I mentioned. That's why it didn't quite make the top five, but I wanted to mention it here. I also definitely wanted to mention uh, The Fall of the Mutants as well, because that was a great story that is a classic and that people don't really talk about enough. I also had to kind of refrain from putting Hoxpox on this list because it was more of a uh, soft reboot rather than kind of a uh, line-wide event, even though it really did... Um, set everything back and start a whole new line of events. Um, I wanted to put it on here, but I, I, I thought it might be cheating. So um, I wanted to look at books that had crossover with other uh, characters, other lines in the Marvel Universe. There is one exception on here, and I'm going to mention it, um, where I kind of go against my rule. But um, I definitely just wanted to talk about my favorite stuff. And if you have a different list than mine, if your list... Um, is completely different feel free to let me know i would love to have that conversation with you um i'm i love like having those conversations about people's lists and like how they would rank stuff it's always just fascinating to me because everybody's experience with comics is going to be different uh a book that i might love you might absolutely hate like Avengers vs. X-Men or Doomsday Clock. But I, uh, and I love having those conversations. Even though we might disagree, it's really cool to get other people's perspectives on that. So if you'd like to have that conversation, you can uh, reach out Twitter and Instagram at GeeksplainedPod. That's at GeeksplainedPod. Uh, you can send emails to geeksplained.gmail.com. I would love to have that conversation with you. So with all of that out of the way, Let's go ahead and jump into the list. At number five, I have Messiah Complex from 2007. This was written by a whole 
bevy of writers, including Ed Brubaker, Peter David, Craig Kyle, Mike Carey, and Christopher Yost. Love you, Christopher Yost. You're a good dude. And with art by Mark Silvestri, Billy Tan, Scott Eaton, Umberto Ramos, and Chris Bacalo. And basically, this was the origin point of the Messiah trilogy, that being uh, Messiah Complex, Messiah War, and Second Coming, which essentially wrapped up the Decimation era, kicked off by House of M, Decimation, M-Day, all that stuff. And the main uh, crux of this story is that at the beginning of the story, we get the first mutant born since the decimation, that being Hope Summers. And Cable has come back in time to make sure that that child survives, while at the same time, Bishop, another time-traveling X-Man from the future, has come to kill that child, because his future is the result of that child killing a whole bunch of people. And so that kind of puts them on this crazy uh, collision course, while... Meanwhile, caught in the middle are the X-Men and the uh, and various Avengers here and there that are kind of brought into this conflict because they are also trying to get their hands on hope. It creates this whole little hopscotch story where everyone is trying to chase down uh, this baby, and it's just a really fun story. The whole significance of this was that not only did it conclude the Decimation Era of the X-Men, but it also uh, was the first major like X-Men crossover event that was just like a big X-Men event in itself uh, for about 10 years at this point. We hadn't really had a big company-wide crossover since right around Age of Apocalypse, maybe? Um and even though other events in uh, the Marvel Universe would include the X-Men, events that you w- that we will talk about on this list as well, um, this was the first one that was really like, this is just for the X-Men. We don't need anybody else. This is going to be something that we can really like seek our teeth into. And I really enjoyed it. Um, unfortunately, I would say uh, Messiah War and Second Coming don't really kind of live up to the high standard or the bar that Messiah Complex sets. But as a story on its own as this kind of um trying to play uh keep away from bishop i think it's a great story it kicks off like i said a trilogy of stories that would help to set up the new status quo going forward into uh the next decade of X-Men stories, and I really, I really like it. So that is why it is at number five. At number four, we have The Mutant Massacre from 1986. This is written by Chris Claremont, Louise Simonson, and Walt Simonson, with art by John Romita Jr., Sal Buscema, and more art by Walt Simonson as well. And the basic synopsis of this is that a whole lot of people die. Um... The Morlocks, if you aren't aware of the Morlocks or their concept, are a group of mutants who, for whatever reason, uh, had mutations that wouldn't allow them to fit well into society, whether they were given powers that just were uncontrollable in public, or they mostly it came down to kind of uh, physical deformities. They were a community of mutants that were basically living in the sewers underneath New York. And this event basically went around to kill the majority of them, if not all of them. A very small number of Morlocks ended up surviving this. And the Marauders are to blame for this 
for this whole thing. The Marauders are a group of mutant hunters, uh, kind of masterminded by Mr. Sinister, even though I don't believe he had been kind of um, revealed yet at the point that this book had come out. But what I love about the story is that it's really just, it's a fantastic um look at the effect that the X-Men and their events can have on the Marvel Universe. This was kind of, if and I might be wrong, if I am wrong, feel free to let me know, um, this was kind of the first big X-Men crossover event. This was the first time that the X-Men really crossed over into books like Daredevil and Thor. So, And in so doing, they became part of that bigger world that we've talked about before on this podcast on this podcast um the inclusion of thor in the uh, simonson era was also strange but actually works really well and they ended up crossing over with uh i believe it was anacenti's daredevil uh which is an incredible run that you should absolutely check out uh good friend of the podcast and uh, frequent collaborator Matt Draper actually has a video about the Anacenti run on YouTube. So if you want to check out and learn more about that run, definitely check that out. I am a huge fan of this event for a lot of reasons. Uh, First of all, being that essentially this is a crossover where there is no happy ending. This is a crossover where our heroes lose. The Morlocks are more or less wiped out by the Marauders. Uh, This also puts several of them, including uh, Nightcrawler, Kitty Pride, and Colossus in critical condition and pretty much changed the course of Warren Worthington's life. This is the uh, event where he was crucified by the Marauders by his wings and had to eventually have them amputated, which set him on the course to become Archangel. So this is a huge turning point for him as a character this was also a huge turning point for the mutants in general. This was a clear sign that, oh, crap, you know, it has been, you know, decades since they were established as fighting against people who hate and fear them. But this was also a wake up call to a lot of um, a lot of uh, members, uh, a lot of the members of the X-Men that people are still hunting us and sometimes they are going to be members of our community and it's so incredibly exciting and also um sad to watch this event happen and watch all of these people lose their lives because of you know bigotry and hate and it's really it's unfortunate um this also is notable for being the very first showdown between wolverine and Sabretooth before their uh history was kind of put out for the world to read about and i love this fight it is knockdown it is drag out it is a huge just grimy brawl that the two of them go um go up against each other for both characters had been established prior to this and this was kind of your uh your you know what if you know this person could meet this person this was a dream match and seeing the two of them just tear into each other in the sewers was so cool to watch um also as i mentioned before uh daredevil crossed over with this um having daredevil go up against Sabretooth was actually really cool too kind of on the heels of everything that had happened and thor is actually the person who rescues warren worthington from the marauders after he has been uh, attacked and tortured. And so it's just a really well uh, 
well-wound and well-told story that utilizes characters that wouldn't normally fit into X-Men stories. And it was kind of the template for X-Men crossovers going forward after this. Um, I believe it was Louise Simonson who said, you know, I don't know why we did this and I don't know why we're um, planning on doing this again. This This was a nightmare and I'm assuming that means to get kind of all the creative teams on the same page. Which is, you know, sad, but it's also, it's hilarious because they even knew then that crossovers were going to be a a huge, huge undertaking and that a lot of things would have to be, there would be a lot of plates spinning to try and pull this off. And this kind of kicked off the yearly X-Men event that would go down in one or several X-Men books that would follow. So this is kind of your template. This is the first big X-Men event that... I would say if you aren't familiar with it, you should absolutely go back and check out because it is worth your time. Now jumping into number three, uh, my number three is House of M from 2005. Uh, this is written by Brian Michael Bendis with art by Olivier, Co- Olivier Coppel. I always say his name wrong and I apologize. Um, I love this book. Uh, I know that it has its problems, but House of M was a turning point. Not just for the X-Men, but for the Marvel Universe as a whole. Because this came hot off the heels of Avengers Disassembled. And even though Avengers Disassembled, I would say, is a more um, concise story, uh, this book just takes all of the building blocks from Avengers Disassembled and turns the dial up to 11. Uh, The main crux of the story is following the events of Avengers Disassembled, where it was discovered that the Scarlet Witch had kind of lost her marbles after losing both of her children um, and went about uh, utilizing her... I I don't want to say like she used her power to destroy the... Avengers, but her powers kind of went out of control as a result of her mental state, and it ended up in the deaths of several Avengers, including Clint Barton Hawkeye, Scott Lang Ant-Man, and following this, she was kind of taken under the care of her brother Pietro and her father uh, Magneto, uh, back to Genosha, where she would be more or less taken care of um, as they tried to recover her mind. This book starts off with uh, her treatment, where she is being treated by both Doctor Strange as well as uh, Charles Xavier to try and fix or uh, just try and help her recover from her kind of mental breakdown. And the Avengers are eventually called in Uh, alongside the X-Men to figure out what to do with her because she is not getting any better and she's becoming more unstable and with her ability to warp reality, things are only going to get worse. So a team of Avengers and a team of X-Men both come to Genosha uh, to figure out what to do with her when all of a sudden Peter Parker blinks and he wakes up in a new world where um, everything is not quite right he wakes up uh next to gwen stacy uh who he has apparently married and had a child with um mutants are the dominant species on earth and they are kind of helmed by the house of magnus uh headed up by magneto and his three children lorna dane uh polaris pietro and wanda maximoff 
Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch, uh, respectively. And a lot of things have changed. Uh, Carol Danvers, who at this point was still uh, Miss Marvel, uh, is the premier superhero in the world. Uh, Captain America, and one of the one of my still when I reread it for this episode, still broke my heart, where he was a uh, 100-year-old old man who had never been frozen, went on to win World War II, and then subsequently watched all of the people that he uh, loved die off as his super soldier serum uh, enhanced his ability to age. He's still, you know, kind of an old man. You know, he's over 100 by the time that they find him. But in the way that... When he went into the ice and woke up, all of his people were gone. He didn't have to watch them suffer and die. This Steve Rogers did. So it's both like, hey, he never, you know, had to miss out on his life, but also he had to watch everyone die around him. Um, It's both heartbreaking and poetic, the things that happen. Um, But alongside that, pretty much everyone has gotten what they want. Uh, Their heart's desire, as as it's stated in this book. And... Kind of what I love about this book is even though there were, you know, a bevy of different tie-ins, you know, with Spider-Man, with Miss Marvel, with the Avengers, all of these characters, um, the emotional core of this story is really kind of centered around two characters. And they're two of my favorite Marvel characters of all time, that being Spider-Man and Wolverine. Because in this new reality, Wolverine wakes up with all of his memories. And this was a huge turning point, a status quo shift for Wolverine. Because up till this point, he had been, you know, this amnesiac Logan who didn't really know, you know, his past. You know, beyond him getting his claws and being part of the Weapon X program. And in this world, he wakes up knowing that his name is James Howlett. He knows his entire past up to this point. And... Whether or not it was intentional, because of this, he remembers both the original timeline as well as this timeline. And so he goes about trying to find out what the hell happened and how to put everything back. Similarly, Peter Parker wakes up, uh, like I said, you know, married to Gwen Stacy. He has a kid, and he's also one of the most famous people in the in the world, one of the most famous heroes. He had given up his identity. He was a celebrity. Um, him and Mary Jane Watson really only worked together once on a movie, and it's so interesting to see just how everyone is shaped in the, everyone's lives are shaped in this book. Um, some people have gotten pretty much everything they wanted. Some people got things they didn't even know they wanted. Um, Aurora Storm is the princess of Kenya. Uh, we get to see characters who are kind of living out their lives in different ways. We get to see kind of the reverse of the typical mutant problem where they are hated and feared and prejudiced against, where they seem to be doing the same to regular humans. There's a nice uh, little moment between Sam Wilson Falcon and Luke Cage where they talk about uh, Sam Wilson being a detective and how he's the token in that police department, but it's not because he's black, it's because he's a regular human. Um, and I just, I find that fascinating, and I think that this, um, this story has a lot of legs. Um, not all of the story is as concise as I think it could be, which is why it's not further up on the list, but there are certain moments in this book that I find truly moving. There is uh, this emotional core 
to a character like Spider-Man, who um, consistently has to go through the worst shit possible all the time. And he gets to essentially have the life that he always wanted. Uncle Ben is alive in this world. Um, He's married to his college sweetheart, and he is beloved by literally everyone. And when uh, he is kind of made to be aware of the fact that this reality is altered and it's not his reality, he has this complete mental breakdown um, alongside the fact that he has to deal with um, him masquerading as a mutant ever since he was a teenager and the realization that he is not, in fact, a mutant and all of the fallout that comes from that. Uh, Spider-Man gets a lot of shine in this event. There's also a great little moment that he has with Luke Cage. Uh, This was during the uh, kind of early goings of the Bendis New Avengers run, where Spider-Man was really getting to be uh, more of an Avenger uh, scale status when it comes to the hero community. And he has this conversation with Luke Cage where um, Luke talks to him about like, hey, have you talked to Mary Jane? Because at this point uh, in comics, he was married to Mary Jane. And so he talks about he can't get over the fact that um, in this reality, Mary Jane is probably the most successful movie star on the planet, despite the fact that she's only human. And Luke Cage essentially says something along the lines of, you can't square it in your head that she would be more successful if you weren't together. It's like, you can't think like that. And Peter Parker is like, he kind of like looks down. He's just like, except that we're not and she is. And it's not even the fact that he gets to have Gwen back after knowing that she died, after, you know, getting Uncle Ben back and knowing that he died. But it's the fact that the person that he's married to might have a better life without him. And it's something that he has always uh, is always been at the core of his character, the fact that Peter Parker is in a way very self-destructive. And I know this is an X-Men event, and I'm going to get back to them, but I just I had to talk about it because it's one of my favorite uh, things about House of M is their treatment of Peter Parker. Um, and he's just like, he's distraught by this. He's really broken up by this. There's a panel after everything is kind of, you know, more or less set back to normal where um, he is dealing with, you know, the fact that everything's back to normal, but he remembers the House of M timeline, and he can't, like, get over it. And so he asks, you know, Doctor Strange, like, hey, if you could just, it is, you know, very Spider-Man way, like, if you could just get rid of this for me, you know, make me forget that I lived this life, it'd be great. And Doctor Strange is like, my magic doesn't work that way, I can't do that. And Peter just gets incensed. He's like, I told you, take it out of me. And I just, I love it. But going back to the X-Men, and who I would say is the, you know, arguably the lead of this book, uh, Wolverine has to deal with a lot. He has to deal with his, you know, kind of figuring out what his life was beforehand. Um, There's this conversation where uh, everyone is kind of debating on whether they have the right to set things back to the way they were because, you know, Scarlet Witch gave gave, you know, them everything they ever wanted. You know, what are we supposed, how are we supposed to square that away with, you know, trying to set things back to the way they they were just because we think they should be? Um, It's a really fascinating conversation, and the book just has these twists and turns. You find out that even though uh, Magneto is, you know, kind of at the top of the world, he might not be the person who's involved 
in the in this whole event kicking off it's just a fantastic story that i absolutely think you should pick up it's also you know the uh the ramifications of this book were the big turning point for the x-men because up to prior this uh kind of kicking off with grant morrison's new x-men all the way up to this point the x-men had kind of gotten too big uh, mutants were scattered all over the world. You know, we were getting all of these stories, all of these ancillary stories that didn't really seem to match up with each other. And it was kind of uh, Marvel was having a hard time trying to connect everything and trying to make X Men stories feel like they were um, like they all meshed together well. And with this. Um, at the end of this book, as everyone knows, you know, Scarlet Witch utters the No More Mutants line and decimates the mutant population, taking them down from hundreds of thousands, if not millions, to uh, right around 200 in the entire world. And the fallout of this, it being kind of uh, known as M-Day, the decimation, kicked off that decimation era of about right around like five years or so where uh, people were just trying to deal with the fact that hundreds of thousands of mutants were depowered and all of a sudden like the x-men were very small once again they were kind of brought back to that uh that status quo that they had had prior to uh the you know boom of the 90s x-men and it was really i thought a great story that um shaped the way that we were going to read x-men going forward and that's why it's on this list and that's why it's at number three uh going into number two probably my favorite x-men story um even though it's at number two um it's x-men schism from 2011 written by jason aaron with art by carlos pacheco uh frank cho daniel acuna alan davis and adam kubert um this is the story that kind of um that more or less is uh, is going against my rules about having crossover, about you know, kind of being across different lines. This was essentially a, um, a miniseries that was just in its own. I think it's six issue uh, story, six issue miniseries that chronicled the dissolution of the X Men and chronicled and basically kind of set the tone for what the X-Men were going to be in the 2010s. Um, just as much as uh, House of M set them up for the Decimation Era, just as much as the Messiah Complex set them up for the Messiah Trilogy and got them really kind of ready to uh, move into the 2010s when it came to that story, uh, Schism was a story that is, at its core, a personal story between two men about two men who are so different from each other that they end up drawing a line in the sand in the uh, much more pared-down mutant community. Uh, basically, what's going on in this story is that uh, at this point, following Decimation, following Messiah Complex, um, the Messiah Trilogy and whatnot, um, the X-Men and the remaining mutants in the world have all kind of um, more or less... Uh, been brought together on the island of utopia just off the coast of san francisco and this was during a time when the x-men were slowly trying to find their identity again uh the jason aaron run of x-men uh i think went a lot to try and 
put them back to where they were. Uh, the fraction run prior to him was not very good. Uh, Brute Baker tried his best with the X-Men, but like I said, after Messiah Complex, it kind of we got diminishing returns. And the the Jason Aaron run of X-Men that really kind of set them on the path to where they are right now um, was one of my favorite runs. And it was a uh, concerted effort to get the X-Men back to a place where they were feeling like they were, you know, the allegory for the discriminated against, the allegory for the oppressed. And putting them in San Francisco and kind of, I would say, trying to line them up with the persecution that uh, the L- LGBT sorry, the LGBT community um, was going through, I thought was very smart, and also uh, opened them up to a bunch of new stories. Um, The X-Mansion, the Xavier Institute, was pretty much decimated, and during everything that was going on, we started to see a change in Scott Summers. He went from this person who was fighting so desperately sometimes on his own for xavier's dream against people like magneto found himself allying with magneto found himself becoming more and more militant in an effort to protect the mutants that were left um the move to utopia was a big uh was a hot button discussion and a hot button issue when it came to you know We've seen this before. We've seen what happened to Genosha. Um, and putting all the remaining mutants now at our most vulnerable in one you know, specific spot that we could be attacked at any time on um, was a point of contention for a lot of people, including Wolverine. But it was during this time that it seemed like Scott Summers and Logan were kind of drawn together. And, became, and their bond became probably the strongest that it's ever been in the history of either of those two characters. And even though we started to see Scott make some questionable decisions, including pulling together an X-Force team that was essentially the X-Men's Black Ops kill squad, um, Scott was really trying to bring the people together that he was that were left and trying to protect them in a world that still hated and feared them. At the same time, he was starting to, because he was the leader of Utopia, become more and more of a presence on the world stage. Uh, He was specifically openly endorsed by uh, Steve Rogers, Captain America, who at this point was Commander of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, And this was kind of the coming out party for uh, Scott, for the X-Men, because essentially... Uh, Steve Rogers kind of put things in motion to get Scott Summers the Presidential Medal of Freedom and to have the UN recognize Utopia as its own sovereign state and really raise the status of the X-Men once again. And this episode, or this episode, the story kicks off with Wolverine and Cyclops going to the UN for Cyclops to essentially plead with the UN and the countries of the world to dismantle their Sentinel program. As he states in the story, you know, there are probably more Sentinels now than there are mutants. And so he has come to the UN to let people know that, hey, we are not a danger to you. Uh, We are recovering and we need everyone to dismantle their Sentinels. And it's a very altruistic goal that he has. 
Unfortunately, it doesn't end up coming or really going anywhere because Quentin Quire shows up. And that's another reason that I love this story, because I am a huge Quentin Quire mark. I I love Quentin Quire. He is, you know, everything that I think um, a new age, and I'm using quotations here, uh, mutant should be like. He is rebellious. He is kind of an asshole. Okay, he's he's really an asshole. Um, and he got his start during the Grant Morrison era of the X-Men. And having him kind of being the, the match that lights the fuse for everything that happens during this story is just it's it's perfection. Um, anyway, Quentin Quire shows up, basically uses his telepathic abilities to force all of the world leaders to start spouting uh, their deepest, darkest secrets. Uh, kicks off this whole saga of the world all of a sudden arming themselves to the teeth with sentinels, having the exact opposite um, effect that this visit to the UN was planned planning to have um all the while the uh the machinations of Cade Kilgore and his new young hellfire club um kind of setting things in motion perpetuating things ramping up the tension uh really comes down to the ideological differences between Wolverine and Cyclops and just as much as uh Cyclops has been undergoing a change Wolverine has also been undergoing a change across the uncanny x-force Run, which is one of my favorite X-Men stories of all time. If not my favorite, you should check it out. Maybe one day I'll do a story on it. Um, Wolverine has started to slowly morph into what uh, Xavier always kind of wanted him to be. Because as much as Cyclops was Xavier's perfect student and perfect soldier, uh, Wolverine was always Xavier's kind of home pet project. He wanted to take this loner who didn't care about anybody and shape him into someone who cared and in the story you really start to see that effect on him the jason aaron run of wolverine also had an effect on this i believe i might be wrong but this is after might be actually immediately after jason aaron's wolverine run uh where we got to see wolverine slowly starting to come to terms with not only himself, but his place in the greater uh, X-Men community. Following the events of House of M, Decimation, and all that stuff, Wolverine became more um, uh, more in line with who he is, you know, came to grips with his past, came to grips with the fact that he is a weapon, but that doesn't mean that other mutants have to be. And his friendship with Idy, who also, I believe, was uh, created during the Morrison era, uh, really kind of speaks to this whole um, this whole uh, character trait that Logan has always had, where he f- seems to find kindred spirits in uh, younger girls who are trying to find their way in the world. Characters like Jubilee, like Kitty Pride. Um, his friendship with Idy and her basically saying like, hey, I'm okay being a monster. You know, people have been calling me enough that I'm just okay with it now. Really strikes a chord with Wolverine because he is a monster in his own mind. And he kind of um, is able to validate him being a monster by saying like, I'm a monster so other people don't have to be. And this juxtaposition where Idy, who is this just innocent person, um, is forced to make certain decisions that 
make her view herself as a monster is something that I just, I love. I absolutely love it. Um, and really shows the growth in Wolverine's character. Uh, the final confrontation between uh, Cyclops and Wolverine is what I look at as the reasons why this story works where Civil War doesn't. Um, a big... I think sticking point with a lot of people, including myself, when it comes to Civil War, even though it is this landmark event, is that things had to be distinctly changed. Certain characters had to act out of character for that story to happen. Um, it is absolutely a tentpole Marvel event that has a legacy behind it. Uh, but the things that Mark Millar did to Steve Rogers and to Iron Man to essentially force them to come into contact or come into conflict with each other is so um is i think a black mark on the story because you had to fundamentally change these characters and how they go about doing things to make this conflict happen whereas in this story even though there is someone manipulating things behind the scenes these two have always kind of butted heads cyclops and wolverine have always been at odds with each other and even though the utopia era of the x-men brought the two men closer together their varying uh character development really is what sets them apart yet again except this time you know it is very clear that the two of them are on the opposite sides of where they used to be or opposite sides of who they usually are um, and that isn't something that's just like, oh, this is kind of shoehorned in here. You see the character development that has happened with these characters. Um, when a sentinel is beset upon Utopia, um, all the heavy hitters are kind of down or otherwise unavailable. Scott is standing there with five teenagers echoing the uh, original X-Men team where they were just, you know, teenagers set about to fight sentinels and magneto um scott's like we can do this we are gonna fight this sentinel with our last breath and wolverine is like no these are kids they should allowed to be they should be allowed to be kids you and i can fight things all the live long day but we're not gonna do this to these children and rob them of their childhoods you get to see the ideological differences between the two men one who has been in this fight since he was a teenager and is essentially getting tired of that fight and, you know, being kind of restricted by the idea that it's all he's ever known versus someone who um, is willing to fight for the greater good but is not willing to put other people or force other people to make that same choice. It's wonderfully haunting how the conflict happens and the final fight between the two spurred on by this exchange of like cyclops going you know she never loved you talking about gene gray because the two of them are so like they're wound so tight it's this last thing where they're trying to uh get one over on each other as the sentinel is bearing down on utopia cyclops is like you know she never loved you you know she was always afraid of you and as biting as that is, Wolverine hits him back with a, yeah, and if you think she was here right now, who do you think she'd be afraid of? And the two of them just come to blows, and it's so great because this continuity, just like what Jason Aaron is so good at, 
you know, this continuity, continuity matters. Things happen in the story because of who these two are and who these two have always been. And the fact that this is also kind of the origin point for what the X-Men were in the 2010s is just, it makes this story iconic for me. It's one of my favorite X-Men stories of all time. If you haven't read it, this is really what sets everything in motion when it comes to the X-Men in the 2010s. Um, this is what sets them apart. This is what sets uh, the collision course on for Cyclops against the Avengers that perpetuates Avengers versus X-Men. That leads into, my, I would say, one of, if not my favorite uh, X-Men runs of all time, that being Jason Aaron's Wolverine in the X-Men, as well as uh, his uh, Uncanny X-Men, where Cyclops is a mutant terrorist. Um, I love that era of the X-Men. It's one of my favorites, and this is kind of the origin point for all of that. So if you are looking to get caught up, if you are like, hey, you know, I really like the Hickman X-Men era, but I also want to go back and check out you know, the past 10 years of X-Men stories, this is where you start. Schism is where you start because that kicks off everything that happens involving the X-Men going through the last decade. So I would definitely check that out. And that is why it is at number two on my list. I love it so much. But there is one event. There is one event in X-Men history that even as much as I love Schism, I could not put it above this. And that is, of course... The seminal, the iconic, the legendary Age of Apocalypse from 1995, written by a slew of different writers, but mostly helmed by Scott Lobdell, Mark Wade, Fabian Nicieza, and I always say that wrong and I'm sorry, on writing duties with art by Andy and Adam Kubert, Steve Epting, Joe Maggiorera, uh Tony Daniel, Chris Bacolo, Roger Cruz, and a bunch of other artists. Um, this is the... X-Men event. When people talk about X-Men events, this is it. This is the highest heights that X-Men has ever reached when it comes to their big events. And also, I would argue, one of, if not the best uh, Marvel crossover events. You know, they've been, I think... Marvel has kind of been chasing the dragon following this event, trying to reach the highs that that event had. Because this was not just a company-wide crossover, but it reached mainstream appeal. People love the Age of Apocalypse. And the story, much like, uh, much like the House of M, is a reality-shifting story that has lots of things to do with Magneto. Uh, essentially, Legion, David Haller, the son of uh, Charles Xavier, who is a complete psychopath in the comics, um, goes back in time to kill Magneto so that his father can have the utopia that he believes he deserves. And unfortunately, when he goes back, uh, Bishop uh, goes after him and is unfortunately unable unable to stop Legion from killing someone, only that someone isn't Magneto, it's Charles Xavier. Uh, Legion ends up accidentally killing his father, which not only basically erases him from the timeline, but also kicks off a whole new reality. Uh, that being the Age of Apocalypse, where Apocalypse rules North America, and everyone is essentially at this nuclear standoff. Uh, the world is as bad as it can really get under Apocalypse's rule, and we have this X-Men team that is headed by uh, Magneto as the leader of the X-Men, along with a bunch of other different stories going on in this world. And what I love about this is that this is 
not just a universe shattering event, but it showed it gave Marvel the freedom to say, okay, we are going to wipe the slate clean, tell new stories with familiar characters. Uh, we would see this repeated again in stories like Onslaught with Heroes Reborn, but this was in the scope of a of an alternate reality story with the goal to get back to where we were. Uh, this was my first big uh, X-Men story. This I remember this story growing up. This was uh, the first big time that I was like, oh man, the X-Men. Um, and I was absolutely enamored with it. This story has had a legacy that goes far beyond you know, just the initial story. And it's huge. It is Marvel Universe, you know, expanding over. Like, you see stories with uh, Steve Rogers and his human resistance. You see stories with the Fantastic Four. You get to see how the death of Charles Xavier fundamentally shapes the world around him. And I love that. As terrible as a person as Charles Xavier can and has been, uh, can be and has been, it's really interesting to see how different the world would be without him in it. Um, this is also, you know, I have talked to people before about some of my favorite stuff when it comes to, um, when it comes to the X-Men, I think the, uh, Gambit and the Externals is a great story, uh, if you're looking for, like, tie-ins. Uh, I also really like, uh, Generation Next. I know it's not everyone's cup of tea, but I really like that as kind of a tragic story. Um, and then, of course, the main Age of Apocalypse story. Also, um, uh, I think it was called Factor X with this they they it was originally x factor they changed a lot of the uh, x books names to kind of show like hey this is different um but the cyclops and havoc story where they are essentially uh the sons of mr sinister i love it uh and this story has an endearing legacy that like i said far outreaches the confines of the original story we've seen you know revisits we've seen you know this 10-year anniversary uh story that happened in 2005 you saw them revisited in, in the exiles you saw them revisited again in again one of my favorite x-men stories uh uncanny x-force which kicked off another limited series as a sequel inside that world and even though it wasn't as good um anything having to do with that world i think is so so cool uh, this is kind of the bar uh, that even though Mutant Massacre had kind of set, this one raised the bar, you know, eight or nine notches to set, to basically say like this, if X-Men events are going to be successful, they have to be at least as good as Age of Apocalypse. Um, this is the story that everyone kind of looks to when you're looking at, oh, I want to read X-Men, you know, what is the best X-Men story? And I know that's incredibly subjective subjective and it always has been but a lot of people will point to age of apocalypse just because of how far reaching it was how much of a of an effect it had on not just marvel but the comics community as a whole like it's been stated before people have talked about it that the clone saga of spider-man and i know a collective shudder just went up everyone's spines um the only reason that the clone saga was as big and overblown as it was was because of how successful the age of apocalypse was um and for me personally uh, marvel events really didn't hit that age of apocalypse high again until secret wars in 2015 which i would say um, I would have to really think about it, but I would say is probably the best Marvel Comics crossover of all time. Um, but this book with 
just how many spinning plates it had, how many characters it was managing, the amount of incredible stories that were told within this world um, is the reason why it is so beloved, the reason why that it is uh, constantly revisited and uh, homaged, and the reason why it is at number one on my list as the best X-Men event of as my favorite X-Men event of all time. Like I said, my list is, of course, incredibly subjective. Um, I think that the X-Men have had a lot of great, incredible event stories. And even though I don't know if I will be picking up all 22 chapters, fingers crossed that at the very least... X of Swords, Ten of Swords, whatever you want to call it, can be a little bit closer to a schism or an Age of Apocalypse and a little bit farther away from an onslaught. It is now time for the weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. Specifically, we're reviewing episode number six of season two of The Boys entitled The Bloody Doors Off. And I gotta say, when it comes to The Boys, some of my favorite episodes so far in this show have involved some pretty uh, revealing and deep flashbacks. And this episode, wouldn't you know it, involves a pretty good flashback. Eight years ago, we get to see Frenchie's origin him being recruited to Mallory's original team of the boys, featuring himself, M.M., and Billy Butcher. Um, And I just, I love this episode, man. This episode might be my favorite so far this season because of just how many plates they had spinning, how many character arcs they were playing with in this show, and how they moved all of them forward. Um, There's so much going on. Uh, The Deep is slowly trying to get back into the Seven at the same time that Maeve is trying to work her way out. Uh, The Deep goes through one of my favorite line, or one of my favorite storylines in this episode, is the Deep trying to recruit A-Train into the Church of the Collective based off of him being kind of at the lowest point of his life, the same way that he was recruited into the uh, Collective. And I'm really excited. I talked about, I think last week, that I am all in on A-Train. I, he's one of my favorite characters this season just because of the journey they have him on. And I'm really excited to see what they do with him as part of this collective now. Uh, we also get to see that Elena finds out the truth about the plane crash from last season that Maeve uh, is involved and in, that she's planning on using footage that was salvaged from the flight as blackmail against Homelander. But that, of course, drives a wedge between... Maeve and Elena because now she knows that Maeve was um if not res- if not partially responsible uh was uh willing to stand aside to let that happen. So it's it's pretty heartbreaking just to see, you know, the two of them getting pushed away from each other. But the big, I think the big um set piece, the main course if you will of this episode was the infiltration of Sage Grove, which is kind of masquerading as like a mental health facility but as we come to find out is actually a testing facility where they are testing the effects of compound v on adults um 
to varying degrees. Uh, the infiltration involves Frenchie, M.M., and Kimiko going in to find out, you know, more information and to find out what's really going on here. Um, during this as well, we get some really nice uh, back and forth between Annie and Butcher uh, based around Butcher's prejudices and his... I don't want to call it racism, but it's kind of racism towards uh, soups of all kinds. And even though that... Annie is willing to help Butcher and the boys. Uh, he is still keeping her at kind of an arm's length. And they are unfortunately forced to uh, work together and kind of find a common ground when Huey is um, injured in the ensuing breakout that happens. Uh, Stormfront, as we see, is kind of running this alongside Lamplighter, who is here, uh, played by Sean Ashmore. I loved Lamplighter. Lamplighter, I'm all in on Lamplighter. Um, there was also a really cool uh, through line through this episode that Kimiko now has PTSD when it comes to Stormfront. Anytime she sees her, especially when they're in person, she kind of like more or less has a panic attack, which I think is super interesting. I can't wait to see how that uh, gets utilized for the rest of the season. Uh, we do come to find out that Lamplighter was essentially um, brought out of his, brought out of the Seven to act as kind of the warden of the of the facility and is the person who basically gets rid of anyone who tries to escape or ask too many questions. And Lamplighter is basically Pyro. It looks like he can't generate fire for himself, but he can use fire. Uh, use pre-existing fire in any way he sees fit. And I really like this. You know, essentially Iceman is going, or uh, Sean Ashmore is going from Iceman to Pyro. And I really liked that. I thought that was really cool. Uh, we also finally get some backstory with Lamplighter and why him and Frenchie hate each other so much. Uh, we find out why Frenchie wasn't there to stop Lamplighter from killing Mallory's uh, grandkids. Uh, Frenchie was dealing with the OD of one of his friends, and Lamplighter thought that he was killing uh, Mallory and, you know, didn't realize until it was too late that he was killing those kids. So it's a really cool um, addition to this team. I love these damaged and broken characters, and I, I'm all in to see more of Lamplighter for the rest of the season, and I'm hoping, you know, fingers crossed that we get more of that. Uh, the breakout was probably the big, you know, set piece where... All of the uh, members of the uh, facility broke out and were killing the guards and everything. And as we come to find out, uh, one of them manages to escape. And it's one of the most dangerous ones. I believe she has telekinesis. At least that's kind of what it looks like. But um, I'm really freaking excited to see what happens following this. Uh, the big bomb that kind of came out of this, though, was the uh, both strengthening yet deteriorating relationship between the power couple of Homelander and Stormfront. The opening of this episode is just brutal. It's just wrong in all of the ways that the boys is uh, good at. And as we come to find out, you know, Homelander is getting attached. He is getting attached to Stormfront. And as he comes to find out, Stormfront is not who she says she is. Uh, she reveals that she was born in Berlin in 1919. And she is a Nazi. She is a freaking Nazi. Um, 
And she was also, she might be the very first suit because as we come to find out, you know, she was uh, the, I believe is the wife or the lover of the original creator of VOD Industries and the creator of Compound V. And he, and she was his first test up subject after the reveal of this um homelander just becomes more infatuated with her so i can't wait to see what else happens um terrible things are afoot but now the boys have another soup on their side someone who is going to be able to give them more information and be able to help them you know kind of stack the deck against the boys or against the seven specifically against homelander and stormfront i'm really excited this episode was everything that it needed to be i believe we only have two more episodes left uh which is both exciting and uh incredibly nerve-wracking but i'm really excited this should be a really really good time i can't wait for episode seven so uh tune in next week for that i'm really excited i can't wait for friday to come around i just found out that um since we're on the west coast uh we you know those episodes drop at like 11 p.m thursday nights uh so i might be jumping into that a little bit earlier just because of how uh, exciting this episode was and if this is a sign to come for the last two episodes of the season i'm gonna be all on board i can't wait to watch next week's episode so tune in next week for that But for now, we're going to roll right on into this week's Comics Countdown. Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up this week, whether it's at your local comic book shop and Comixology, or however you get your comics. These are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. But before we get into this week's comics, we got to take a look back at last week's comics. With the Geek Explained Pick of the Week of last week. And for me, there was no contest. It was very clearly Dark Knight's Death Metal Speed Metal number one. I loved this book. Um, I'm going to be honest with you, it was almost Daredevil because they brought back one of my favorite characters in all of Daredevil comics. I won't spoil it, but um, I'm really excited about her returning. Uh, But this book was just everything that I wanted it to be and more. Written by Joshua Williamson, art by Eddie Barrows, this was the Wally West love letter that I have been asking for. Um, The midpoint between Dark Knight's Death Metal 3 and Death Metal 4, uh, this was... Wally West, Jay Garrick, and Barry Allen trying to outrun The Darkest Night, and I just loved every second of it. Um, This was squaring away everything that had happened to Wally West since Rebirth, and putting him on a collision course with The Darkest Night, and putting him in a position where he could, fingers crossed, rise again to the level of uh, prosperity and love that he has always deserved i love this book there was a page turn reveal that i jumped out of my chair for um if you were looking for a love letter to wally west this book is it for sure but that's last week's book so let's talk about this week we've got eight books for you this week folks that's right eight big books we're going to be talking about each book individually going over their title creative team and a brief synopsis and of course each synopsis will be accompanied by my synopsis voices so just be prepared for that uh so let's go ahead and just dive in starting off with legion of superheroes number nine I gotta roll off this roll call of artists and writers on this. So, I mean, really just one writer. But uh, it's written by Brian Michael Bendis with art by 
Jer- Jenny Friesen, Riley Rosmo, Ivan Race, Arthur Adams, Joe Quinones, John Romita Jr., Nicholas Scott, Jim Chung, Emanuela Lupacino, uh, David Marquez, Gary Frank, Mitch Jarrods, Kevin Nolan, James Heron, Mike Grell, Jean Lun Yang, uh, Nick Darrington, Tua Lote, Michelle Thief, Ryan Sook, um, and yeah, that's it. So, uh, this is part two of the giant, uh, Legion of Superheroes event. Um, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm starting to lose steam on this book. Um, I'm trying really hard. I really like a lot of the characters involved. I'm a big fan of the Legion, but I'm starting to get fatigue. Um, I'm hoping that this book turns me around. Um, we talked about it before that not last issue, but the issue before I absolutely did not like whatsoever. So I'm hoping that this issue, uh, turns me around on that. Fingers crossed. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Continuing a very special two-part comic storytelling event. The United Planets have found the Legion of Superheroes guilty of crimes against the galaxy, and it's up to our young heroes to prove their innocence. Featuring an all-star cast of artists, this issue will feature a surprise 1,000 years in the making. Long live the Legion. So, it's promising something pretty big. Um, I'm hoping that it pays off. Moving right along, we have Wonder Woman number 763, written by Mariko Tamaki with art by Carlo Barberi. I am just going to say it. The story's okay. The story's okay. Um, I am really bothered by the fact that Mikel Janine was only on the first issue, first two issues, I think, of this. I'm a little, I'm a little annoyed by that because they really were selling this as like, hey, you know, Marco Tamaki is going to be writing, Mikel Janine is going to be interiors, and David Marquez is going to be on uh, covers. And I just, I I like it. I don't love it. I'm hoping that um, the story gets, you know, bigger and better. I'm hoping that the story, you know, kind of ramps up with this. I like the idea of Liar Liar, but uh, it, 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 there's a lot of questions I have about this character. So um, hopefully we get some answers with this issue, and let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Sometimes the world needs a little upside down. A brand new foe has made her presence known in the life of Wonder Woman, and Laia Laia isn't going anywhere. In this issue, this unhinged young villain is revealed as the mastermind behind the psychic phenomenon spreading across the globe. But is there more to her than meets the eye? Maxwell Lord is about to find out the hard way, with a bombshell that will shake the smarmy mogul to his core. Can Max trust someone who so ruthlessly uses deception to manipulate her opponents in the first place? Uh, that's hilarious, uh, considering who Maxwell Lord is. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm interested. Like, I don't... I know I sound really negative right now, especially coming off of that Legion book, but um, I like this book. I've been enjoying this book. I just, I wish that they hadn't been so like, hey, it's going to be this team. And there's, you know, there's no, I don't want to sound like I'm hating on Carlo Barberi's art. His art is good. Um, I was just, I was promised something and they did not deliver on it. So that's just, that's just me. Uh, moving on though to Strange Academy number three. Written by Scotty Young with art by Umberto Ramos. I've been enjoying this. You know, it's coming out, you know, every two months, I think. But I've been liking the previous two episodes. Previous two episodes. I keep doing that. Um, 
the previous two issues, and I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with this. It's slowly starting to give me kind of the vibes of Wolverine and the X-Men, um, and I love that book. It's near and dear to my heart. I've talked about it before, but um, I'm interested to see where they go with this. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Doyle Dormammu, head of the class. Anyone who has been to New Orleans knows that it's a magical place, but the students of Strange Academy are about to see it firsthand. Their first field trip as a class shows them a city and the stakes of what they're living in ways that light a fuse that's going to blow up in a big way. So, um, I'm interested. <laughs> I like that this book has been bringing together different you know, characters from different walks of life. We have the twins from Asgard. We have Doyle Dormammu. Um, I'm really interested. I like this book a lot. I think this is a fun book that you can read. Next up, we have Batman, Joker War Zone number one, uh, written by Joshua Williamson and uh, James Tynan IV and John Ridley, with art by Guillaume Marsh, David LaFuente, James Stokoe, and uh, Ben Oliver. I'm really interested in this. We've been, uh, I think, personally, uh, Joker War has been going really well. I've been really enjoying it. I'm really stoked to get uh, the last, I think we're at the last part, or the last two parts. We'll see. Um, but the last part of Joker War is coming up, and this is supposed to kind of flesh out more stuff that's going on within Gotham. We're, I guess we're supposed to get more info on uh, Clown Hunter, which I'm interested in, because he, uh, he is very interesting. So uh, let's go ahead and just dive into the synopsis here. Gotham City is a battleground as the Joker takes over the Wayne Fortune and wages a street war against the Dark Knight and his allies. Enter the War Zone with short stories featuring characters like Cassandra Kane, Stephanie Brown, and Luke Fox, and see how they're fighting back in a city under siege. Also, the brutal, full debut of the mysterious new anti-hero known as the Clown Hunter. So I'm in. Um, stories about Cassandra Kane, Stephanie Brown, I am absolutely in. Luke Fox, I could take or leave, but... Um, I'm really excited about this. This should be a fun time, a good kind of companion piece to the current Joker war going on right now. So definitely check it out. Next up, we have Batman Superman Annual Number 1, written by Joshua Williamson, with art by Clayton Henry, Dale Eaglesham, and Gleb Melnikov. Ugh. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> but um, I've been really enjoying Batman Superman so far. Um, I'm excited about this. I just like looked over the synopsis. So let's go ahead and just dive into it. We'll talk about it in a second. Freestyle Imp Battle. Batman versus Superman. On a dark and stormy night in the fifth dimension, two mortal foes meet to settle an age-old question once and for all. In a fight between Batman and Superman, who would win? The combatants, Mr. Mitz's Pitalik, and Batmite. And in this battle for the ages, you will find out if a fifth dimensional imp can bleed. It's all in this, the ultimate slugfest between the Dark Knight and the Man of Steel, plus a whole lot of magic. So I, yeah, I, this, this sounds like incredible Batman and Superman storytelling. I'm a big fan of Batmite and Mr. Mitz's Pitalik. Um, I'm down for this. This sounds really, really fun. Uh, next up, we have one of my most anticipated books of the year, and that is Shang-Chi number one, written by Jean Lun Yang with a by Philip Tan and DK Ruan. I am so excited about this. I'm really, really looking forward to this book, um... This is a must-buy for me. This is a book that I think you should absolutely be checking out. So let's just go ahead and dive into it. 
The Master Returns. An ancient and evil secret society has stayed in hiding since the death of their leader, Zheng Zhu. But now, the successor has been chosen to shift the balance of power in the world, Zheng Zhu's son, Shang-Chi. Witness the Marvel Universe's greatest fighter return to a world of death and destruction he thought he left behind long ago, and discover the secrets to Shang-Chi's past that will change his world forever. Don't miss out on this epic tale of family, betrayal, and justice. So I'm really excited about this. Um, I love the all-Asian creative team. I'm so excited about this. Um, I'm, re- I'm really, really looking forward to this. Have been for a while. We've talked about it before on the, uh, on the podcast, and I cannot wait to pick this up. Next up, we have uh, Dark Knight's Death Metal Multiverse's End, number one, written by James Tynan IV, with art by Juan Gideon. I think that's how you pronounce his name. If not, I'm sorry. Um, if this is as good as the previous Dark Knight's Death Metal tie-ins, we are in for a treat here, especially with some of the talent that is uh, on this cover, which just looks bonkers. Uh, you see, um, let's see here. You see Guy Gardner. You see, it looks like the Vampire Batman. Um, Calvin Ellis, Superman. I really like that. Uh, Captain Carrot. Is that Owlman? Kind of looks like Owlman. And Uncle Sam as well. I'm looking forward to this. This is going to be a really fun book. I'm assuming that this is basically just going to be kind of going through uh, Perpetua, destroying different worlds. Uh, So let's just go ahead and dive into the synopsis and find out. Multiverses End. Perpetua. Mother of all existence, has culled all life and creation in the multiverse, condensing all beings to one planet, Earth Prime. In her quest for power and dominance, she rules absolutely and in totality, using her children, the Monitors and Anti-Monitors, as her heralds and destructors. But a group of heroes has banded together across multiple worlds in a last-ditch effort to stop her from destroying all of existence. Owlman, President Superman, Iris West, Captain Carrot, Guy Gardner, and others choose to make their final stand in a battle they're destined to lose. So I like that a lot. Um, This is very much your uh, suicide mission by people who are way out of their element, even though we do have a Superman and technically a Batman on the team. Um, I'm just really excited about this. This looks really fun. And like I said, if it's been as good or if it's going to be as good as the previous Death Metal tie-ins, we're in for a treat for sure. But the big book of the week for me, the book I think you should absolutely be picking up this week, is Batman Three Jokers Chapter 2. Two, written by Jeff Johns with art by Jason Fabok and Brad Anderson. Um, this this really got off to a bang. I loved that first issue. It is so good, and I am so excited to pick this up. Let's just go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. As Batman and Batgirl follow an unexpected thread linking the three Jokers with someone from the Dark Knight's past, Red Hood dives headfirst into trouble and finds himself struggling to stay afloat without the aid of his allies. So that sounds really interesting to me, especially how they ended last issue. If you haven't picked it up yet, pick it up. It's great. Um... I just think this is going to be a great time. Um, I'm really interested to see where they put 
uh, Nightwing and Robin if they do end up showing up in this book. It doesn't seem like they're going to because it looks like they're really focused on Batman, Batgirl, and Red Hood. But I would be interested to know where they're at while all this is going on. Um, I just, I I can't wait to unravel more of this story. Uh, This has been, like I said, the first issue got off to a rocking start and I cannot wait to pick this issue up. So that is going to do it for this week's Comics Countdown. To recap, we have Legion of Superheroes number 9, Wonder Woman number 763, Strange Academy number 3, Batman Joker Warzone number 1, Batman Superman Annual number 1, Shang-Chi number 1, Dark Knight's Death Metal Multiverses N number 1, and Batman Three Jokers chapter 2. And that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. This is your first time joining us here on the Geeksplain podcast. Please subscribe on the podcasting platform of your choice, as well as give us a rating and review, especially on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, whatever they want to call it. Um, it really helps us out. If you enjoyed what we do here, it helps kind of raise our stock in the podcasting realm and gets us into the orbit of listeners just like you and plus i really do appreciate it and if you give us a five star rating and review i will read it here live on the podcast you can join the likes of such esteemed gentlemen as c fire nd josh from panels to pixels and matt draper big thanks to all three of them for their reviews and uh yeah if you'd like to join them feel free to do that also if you want to be part of our geeksplain mailbag please feel free to email us at geeksplain pot or at geeksplained at gmail.com. You can send in questions if you have a, uh, if you want me to talk about a pitch, if you want me to, you know, talk about whatever. I love having these conversations with you guys, answering questions. Really what this podcast is meant to do is it's meant to be part of a conversation. So if you have anything you'd like to share with me and you are okay with me uh, talking about it on this podcast just feel free to send those to that email also give us a follow on twitter and instagram at geeksplained pod that's at geeksplained p-o-d if you want to keep up to date with us that is where we held our most recent poll to decide what our next pitch it is going to be that being my pitch for an iron fist animated series which will be on episode 130 so that's coming up in just a couple weeks If you want to keep up to date on what's going on with the podcast, that would be the place to go. Uh, And that's going to do it for this week's episode. Um, I just, I love talking about the X-Men. And even though I don't know if I'm going to be keeping up with every single chapter of uh, Ten of Swords, X of Swords, whatever you want to call it, um, I thought the first chapter was pretty strong and does a good amount of heavy lifting to get you uh, kind of in the mode of what you're expecting for the rest of the arc. Uh, I love the books I talked about. I know that they might not be everybody's favorite. Everyone is going to have their own list. So like I said, if you would like to tell me what your favorite X-Men events are, please feel free to do so. Uh, I know that I am just one geek talking into a microphone about uh, my favorite x-men events so i would love to hear what yours are uh, and that's you know that's it for november we are november september uh we're heading into uh october you know tomorrow as of when this podcast drops and uh we're heading into spooky season uh last year we did a full-on month for uh joker content with the release of the uh, walking phoenix joker movie this year won't be an 
you know, a repeat of Joketober, but I've got some stuff lined up that I'm pretty excited about. So tune in next week for a brand new episode of the Geek Explain podcast, October edition. Same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for Geek Explain, this is Eric Azana. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.